0: Then the religious leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters, so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Then Pilate entered into the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A few years ago my wife went to a conference. My wife Jen works in museums and historic preservation and she goes to these these conferences and most of what happens at these conferences is really only interesting to museum nerds. They get together and talk about a, a bunch of a bunch of museum nerd type stuff. They have speakers come in and talk about the best kind of acid-free paper to use when you're preserving historic documents and and they have presenters come in and tell you the best way to replace the windows in an old historic farmhouse. And most of most of what happens at these conferences really is only interesting to to people who work in museums and preserve old buildings. But at The conference that my wife went to back in 2016, this this conference was particularly memorable. The speaker at this conference was particularly powerful and affecting. The speaker at the conference that year was a man named Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is a lawyer and an activist. For decades with his group, the Equal Justice Initiative, he has sought to defend people on death row. His group goes and finds people who are are on death row who were there because of false accusations, people who were unjustly convicted, people who never got a fair trial. And Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative, they work to get those convictions overturned. They work to get people new trials and representation that they didn't have the first time they went through, through the court system. At this particular conference, Brian Stevenson was speaking because he and his group, the Equal Justice Initiative, were working on a, a new project. The story behind the project is this Brian Stevenson loves to, to travel the world. And as he traveled the world, he saw all of these memorials and monuments. He went to Berlin in Germany and he saw there a a memorial to all of the people who had been killed during the Holocaust. And he went to South Africa. He went to Johannesburg and he saw there a a memorial to all of the victims of South African apartheid. He traveled the world and saw all these monuments and memorials and then he came back to America. He came back to the state of Alabama and he looked around and he realized that there is no monument, there's no memorial like that in America. Nowhere in America was there any sort of memorial to all of the victims of white supremacy, of slavery and segregation. And he said there's something wrong about that. It's wrong that we should not tell this part of our story. It's wrong that we should forget this part of our history. And so he and his group, the Equal Justice Initiative, started making plans and coming up with a vision for a memorial to the victims of supremacy throughout American history. And when he spoke at that conference a few years ago, they were still in the fundraising stage. They were still trying to raise the money to make this vision a reality. Just a little less than two years ago, this monument actually opened. The memorial now exists. You can go now to the the city of Montgomery in Alabama and visit what is called the the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. And if you go to Montgomery, Alabama, this is what you're going to find there. This is what the the memorial, the monument is like. There's a sort of a a giant canopy, a a great big structure with a roof, but with no walls. And hanging from that canopy, there are all of these steel rectangles, 805 steel rectangles. Every one of those rectangles is the the size and the shape of a coffin. And every one of those rectangles is inscribed with the name of a county in America where lynchings were documented as having taken place. And every one of those rectangles is inscribed with the names of the victims of those lynchings, the people who who were lynched in that county and it's a, a powerful experience to go there and to look up and to see all of these all of these slabs hanging from the canopy there's a picture of it in in this morning's bulletin if you open the bulletin you'll find you'll find a picture of what some of those slabs look like but those hanging rectangles might not be the most powerful the most visionary part of this memorial this monument maybe even more powerful maybe even more more stirring is what stands next to this canopy with all of these rectangles hanging down next to that Canopy. Next to the, the memorial, with all of these steel rectangles hanging in the air, there is a, a forest of columns. Next to the canopy, there are 805 steel columns. And each of those columns is also inscribed with the name of a county. And each of those columns is also inscribed with the names of the victims of these lynchings. More than 4,000 people who were killed, who were murdered by mobs in the 70-odd years following the American Civil War. And the vision of Brian Stevenson, his hope is that counties throughout America will come and claim their column, that they will come and take their column back home and that they will put it in the actual places where these lynchings took place, that they will use these columns to tell the story of the things that happened there to remember the ancestors who were murdered in those places. 805 columns when the the memorial opened just a a little under two years ago. And just about two years later now, if you go to Montgomery, Alabama and visit this memorial, you will see that there are still hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of columns waiting to be claimed, waiting to be taken home. It's not clear if those columns will ever be claimed, if they will ever be taken back to the counties where, where these events actually happened. It turns out that the story of supremacy and injustice is a difficult story for people to tell. It turns out that the story of supremacy and justice is a story that not everybody wants to tell. It turns out that the story of supremacy and injustice is a difficult story to hear. That's what we experienced when we went to the movies this week. This week we went to a a movie uh, called Just Mercy. And this movie, Just Mercy, tells the story of one of Bryan Stevenson's very first cases. This movie tells the story of how Bryan Stevenson, as a young lawyer fresh out of law school, went to the state of Alabama, and he met there a man by the name of Walter McMillan. And Walter McMillan was on death row. He had been convicted of, of the murder of a young white woman. And as Brian Stevenson looks into Walter McMillan's case, he discovers that the the evidence against Walter McMillan was beyond flimsy. He discovers that, that when Walter McMillan was arrested, the police were under intense pressure to just arrest somebody, just put somebody in jail so the community could feel safer. And so they pointed the finger at Walter McMillan. And they coerced a white man to give false testimony against him to say that he had committed the murder. And, and even though there were dozens and dozens of African-American witnesses who could say that Walter McMillan was at a completely different place at the time the crime was committed, the word of that one false witness was enough to convict Walter McMillan of murder. And so there he was on death row. And the movie tells the story of how Brian Stevenson worked to present the judge with evidence that Walter McMillan deserved a new trial. He got that one witness to admit, to confess that he had lied in his testimony. He brought forth piles and mountains of other witnesses and evidence that Walter McMillan could not possibly have committed this crime, that the police should be looking for somebody else. He presents all of this evidence to the judge and then comes one of the most powerful and disturbing scenes in what was a very powerful and disturbing movie. There was the scene where the judge sits at his bench in his black robe and looks at all of these mountains of evidence that are in front of him and he He looks at the people gathered in the courtroom, people who are certain that Walter McMillan is about to be released and given a new trial. And then the judge, he says, I can't find any compelling reason to grant this man a new trial. He said, I can't find any compelling reason to overturn this man's conviction. Walter McMillan is going back to death row. He's going to be executed on schedule just like we have always planned. And when that moment happened, I experienced something that I've never experienced in the movie theater before, when the judge announced that Walter McMillan wasn't going to get a new trial, when it became clear to the people in the courtroom and the people in the movie theater that this judge was perfectly willing to execute a man that he knew full well could not have committed the crime, there were gasps in the movie theater. Some people actually even started to get up out of their seats. A couple people started shouting at the movie screen, I have never experienced anything like it in a movie theater, and as this wave of shock and outrage swept through the movie movie theater all I could think sitting there sitting there in the theater was why why are we so surprised Why are we so surprised that a judge would be willing to condemn an innocent man? Why are we so surprised that the justice system could become a tool of supremacy and injustice? Why are we so surprised that sometimes convictions are not about guilt or innocence or truth at all? Why are we so surprised that this sort of thing could happen? Because this sort of thing is exactly what happened to Jesus. the, The day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, the city of Jerusalem is a powder keg just waiting to explode. The Jewish people are tired of Roman oppression. They are tired of seeing Roman soldiers everywhere they go. They are are tired of taxes and they are tired of military checkpoints and, and they are tired of being humiliated and disrespected and there is talk of revolution. There is murder in the air in the city of Jerusalem. And the week that Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem, things are particularly tense because the city is filled to overflowing with people who are there to celebrate the Passover festival For our our Jewish friends, the Passover festival is a time to gather together and remember how Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. The Passover festival is a moment when Jewish people gather and remember how God freed them from slavery and oppression once before. And so the Passover festival always makes the Romans really nervous. All of these Jewish people gathered together talking about liberation and revolution and freedom from oppression makes the Romans nervous. And And so the streets are... Are filled with extra Roman soldiers, all of them dressed head to toe in riot gear on the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And, and into this powder keg of a city comes this man, this man, Jesus. Now, the religious leaders and the, the community leaders, they don't know a lot about Jesus. But what they know makes them really nervous. They know that Jesus is some sort of a a prophet. They know that he's some sort of a miracle worker. They know that wherever Jesus goes, huge crowds of people gather together and they know that Jesus is constantly criticizing the religious leaders. He is constantly criticizing the wealthy and powerful leaders of the community and they are worried that Jesus is going to be the spark that blows up the entire city. They are worried that Jesus is going to say one word, do the wrong thing, and suddenly the city is going to erupt in violence and revolution and the religious leaders, the community leaders, they decide that they need to do something about Jesus, that they can't let him continue to pose a threat to the city, and so they move against Jesus. They have Jesus arrested in the dead of the night, and then in the early hours of the morning, before the city is even awake, they put Jesus on trial, and the religious leaders bribe and coerce people to give false testimony against Jesus, and then they convict him, they declare him guilty, and then there's only one thing left to do, but they can't do it. They want to put Jesus to death, but the religious leaders don't have the power to execute a criminal. Only the Roman governor has got the power to hand out a death penalty. And so they take Jesus to the Roman governor. They take him to Pontius Pilate. And they bring him to Pontius Pilate and they say, Pilate, take our word for it. This is a really dangerous guy. This man has been going around declaring himself the king of the Jews. This man has been going around telling people that he is even more powerful the emperor and that he's going to overthrow the entire Roman Empire all by himself. Take our word for it. Jesus is a really bad guy and he needs to be put to death. And Pilate looks at the religious leaders and he has a suspicion that he's being played. He has a suspicion that they're not playing straight with him. And so he turns to Jesus and Pontius Pilate asks him a question. He says, what do you have to say for yourself? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus looks at Pilate and Jesus says, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. He said, I came into this world to show people the truth. And everyone who cares about the truth, everyone who seeks the truth knows exactly who I am and exactly what I came to do. And Pontius Pilate looks at Jesus and he raises an eyebrow and he says, Truth? What is truth? Now for two thousand years now people have been arguing, trying to figure out what on earth Pontius Pilate means when he asks Jesus this question, What is truth? Some people say that maybe Pontius Pilate was a really deep dude and he wanted to have a philosophy conversation with Jesus and talk about the the ideas of Plato and Aristotle. And I suppose that could be true. I suppose that it's possible that that's what Pontius Pilate is doing. But there's a much more simple and straightforward explanation for what is happening in this moment, what those words mean. And the simple and straightforward explanation is this. In that moment, when he asked that question, Pontius Pilate reveals what this trial is really about. Pontius Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, truth? What is truth? Who said anything about truth? Don't you understand what is happening here? Don't you understand that none of this actually has anything to do with guilt or innocence? Don't you understand that none of this actually has anything to do with trying to find the truth? He says, my job is to nail people to crosses. And for my purposes, innocent people work just as well as guilty ones. If you had walked into Jerusalem that day, this is what you would have seen. You would have seen rows and lines of crosses all along the side of the road leading into the city. And you would have seen bleeding and broken Jewish people hanging on those crosses. And you would have understood what everyone else who walked past those crosses understood. That those people were not hanging there because they were guilty of any crime. Those people were hanging on those crosses to remind everybody exactly who was in charge. Those people were hanging on those crosses so the Romans could continue to feel safe and the Jews would continue to feel afraid. Those people were hanging on those crosses so the Romans could continue to feel powerful and the Jews would continue to feel weak. Those people were hanging on the crosses because the cross was never a tool of justice. The cross was always a tool of supremacy. Just like the rope hanging from the tree, just like the electric chair. Jesus said, I came into this world to help people see the truth. When Jesus died on the cross, he revealed the system of so-called justice as a system of so-called injustice. He revealed to us what injustice looks like so we would recognize it when we see it. And then Jesus rose from the dead so we would have the courage to resist injustice wherever we find it. That's what Betty Matura did. So this week I got to to lead a service of death and resurrection for a member of our Court Street Church family. Betty Matura moved to Flint from Alabama back in the year 1950. Back then her name was Betty Pless. And when Betty moved to the city of Flint, the first thing she did was she joined the Court Street Methodist Church. And Betty was a good Methodist. She sang in the choir. She taught seventh grade Sunday school. She raised her children here in the church. And then this week I got to talk to her children and and ask about her life. And one of the questions that I asked her children was, how did Betty live out her life when she wasn't here on Sunday morning? How did her faith, how did her Methodist faith, how did her faith in Jesus, how did it shape her life? And they had the most wonderful answer to that question. When I asked them that question, immediately, this is what they said to me. They said, Betty's faith gave her a passion for justice and the courage to stand up to injustice. And then they started telling me these stories about Betty's life. And I'm not going to tell you all the stories that we could tell about Betty this morning. I just want to tell you one story. So Betty used to ride the bus back down to Alabama to visit her, her parents. And in the 50s and 60s, riding buses through the south back down to the state of Alabama, Betty saw some things. And her children told me the story of one thing that happened when Betty was waiting at a bus station one day. They said she was sitting there at the station waiting for a bus when she saw a a child, a young black child who was clearly in distress. And this child was standing in front of the ticket counter and this child was trying to get the attention of the man who was behind the counter selling tickets. And the child just kept saying to the man, excuse me, sir, would you tell me where the bathrooms are? Excuse me, sir, please, I just need to know where the bathrooms are. Excuse me, I have to go to the bathrooms. Would you tell me where the bathrooms? are. And the whole time that this child was sitting there, was standing there asking this man to to please show me where the bathrooms are, the man was ignoring the child completely, pretending that the child wasn't there. It was clear that this man was getting some sort of pleasure from the child's discomfort. And Betty across the, the lobby, she watched this for a few seconds and then she couldn't take it anymore. So she stood up. And she marched across the bus station, and her daughter said, I can still hear her heels click, click, clicking across the linoleum as she marched over to that ticket counter. She said, Betty leaned across the counter. She looked that man in the eye, and she said, Excuse me, where are the bathrooms? And then the man sheepishly looked at Betty and told her where the bathrooms were, and then Betty gave him a good, hard glare. And then she reached out and offered the child her hand, and the child took her hand, and together they walked off to find the bathrooms. Betty escorted this child off to the bathrooms. That's just one story, one story from the life of a member of our Court Street Church family. This week we remembered Betty. We told many stories of how she resisted injustice wherever she found it. This week we remembered Betty as someone whose Methodist faith helped her to see injustice and recognize it when she saw it. This week we remembered Betty as someone whose faith gave her the courage to stand up to injustice whenever she encountered it. And my prayer and my hope this morning is that someday somebody will remember us that way too. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and courage to stand. God, we pray that you would help us to see when the things that are called justice are... Actually, injustice. God, we pray that you would make us angry when we need to feel angry. That you would make us sad when it is appropriate that we should feel sad. God, we pray for your kingdom to come and heal this world. And we thank you for letting us be a part of that healing. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.